That's all right. I'll go to the kitchen. She slouched out of the room. She was untidily dressed, as usual, and there were potatoes in both heels. Mrs. Simington said with a little apologetic laugh, <laughs> My poor Megan, she's just at that awkward age, you know. Girls are always shy and awkward when they just left school, before they're properly grown up. I saw Joanna's fair head jerk backwards in what I knew to be a warlike gesture. But Megan's twenty, isn't she, she said. Oh, oh, yes, yes, she is, but of course she's very young for her age, quite a child still. So nice, I think, when girls don't grow up too quickly. She laughed again. I expect all mothers want their children to remain babies. I can't think why, said Joanna. After all, it would be a bit awkward if one had a child who remained mentally six while his body grew up. Oh, you mustn't take things so literally, Miss Burton, said Mrs. Symington. It occurred to me at that moment that I did not much care for Mrs. Symington. The anemic, slightly faded prettiness concealed, I thought, a selfish and grasping nature. She said, and I disliked her a little more still, Oh, my poor Megan, she's rather a difficult child, I'm afraid. I've been trying to find something for her to do. I believe there are several things one can learn by correspondence, designing and dressmaking, or she might try and learn shorthand and typing. The red glint was still in Joanna's eye. She said, as we sat down again to the bridge table, I suppose she'll be going to parties and all that sort of thing. Are you going to give a dance for her? A dance? Mrs. Symington seemed surprised and amused. Oh, no, we don't do things like that down here. I see, yes, just tennis parties and things like that. Our tennis court has not been played off for years. Neither Richard nor I play. I suppose later when the boys grow up, oh, Megan will find plenty to do. She's quite happy, just pottering about, you know. Let me see, did I deal two no trumps? As we drove home, Joanna said with a vicious pressure on the accelerator pedal that made the car leap forward, I feel awfully sorry for that girl. Megan? Yes, her mother doesn't like her. Oh, come now, Joanna, it's not as bad as that. Yes, it is. Lots of mothers don't like their children. Megan, I should imagine, is an awkward sort of creature to have about the house. She disturbs the pattern, the Symington pattern. It's a complete unit without her. And that's the most unhappy feeling for a sensitive creature to have. And she is sensitive. Yes, I said, I think she is. I was silent a moment. Joanna suddenly laughed mischievously. Bad luck for you about the governess. I don't know what you mean, I said with dignity. Nonsense. Masculine chagrin was written on your face every time you looked at her. I agree with you. It is a waste. I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm delighted all the same. It's the first sign of reviving life. I was quite worried about you at the nursing home. You never even looked at that remarkably pretty nurse you had. An attractive minx, too. Absolutely God's gift to a sick man. Your conversation, Joanna, I find definitely low. My sister continued without paying the least attention to my remarks. So I was much relieved to see you still got an eye for a nice bit of skirt. She is a good looker. Funny that the essay should have been left out completely. It is odd, you know, Jerry. What is the thing that some women have and others haven't? What is it that makes one woman, even she only says, foul weather, so attractive that every man within range wants to come over and talk about the weather with her? I suppose Providence makes a mistake every now and then when sending out the parcel. One Aphrodite face and form, one temperamental ditto. 
and something goes astray and the Aphrodite temperament goes to some little plain-faced creature and then all the other women go simply mad and say, I can't think what the men see in her. She isn't even good-looking. Have you quite finished, Joanna? Well, you do agree, don't you? I grinned. I'll admit to disappointment. And I don't see who else there is here for you. You'll have to fall back upon Amy Griffiths. God forbid, I said. She's quite good-looking, you know. Too much of an Amazon for me. She seems to enjoy her life all right, said Joanna. Absolutely disgustingly hearty, isn't she? I shouldn't be at all surprised if she had a cold bath every morning. And what are you going to do for yourself, I asked. Me? Yes. You'll need a little distraction down here if I know you. Who's being low now? Besides, you forget Paul. Joanna heaved up a not very convincing sigh. I shan't forget him nearly as quickly as you will. In about ten days you'll be saying, Paul? Paul who? I never knew a Paul. You think I'm completely fickle, said Joanna. When people like Paul are in question, I'm only too glad that you should be. You never did like him, but he really was a bit of a genius. Possibly, though I doubt it. Anyway, from all I've heard, geniuses are people to be heartily disliked. One thing you won't find any geniuses down here. Joanna considered for a moment, her head on one side. I'm afraid not, she said regretfully. You'll have to fall back upon Owen Griffiths, I said. He's the only unattached male in the place. Unless you count old Colonel Appleton. He was looking at you like a hungry bloodhound most of the afternoon. Joanna laughed. He was, wasn't he? He was quite embarrassing. Don't pretend. You're never embarrassed. Joanna drove in silence through the gate and round to the garage. She said then, There may be something in that idea of yours. What idea? Joanna replied, I don't see why any man should deliberately cross the street to avoid me. It's rude apart from anything else. I see, I said, you're going to hunt the man down in cold blood. Well, I don't like being avoided. I got slowly and carefully out of the car and balanced my sticks. Then I offered my sister a piece of advice. Let me tell you this, girl. Owen Griffith isn't any of your tame, whining, artistic young men. Unless you're careful, you'll stir up a hornet's nest about your ears. That man could be dangerous. Oh, oh, do you think so, demanded Joanna, with every symptom of pleasure at the prospect. Leave the poor devil alone, I said sternly. How dare he cross the street when he saw me coming? All you women are alike. You harp on one theme. You'll have Sister Amy gunning for you, too, if I'm not mistaken. She dislikes me already, said Joanna. She spoke meditatively, but with a certain satisfaction. We have come down here, I said sternly, for peace and quiet, and I mean to see we get it. But peace and quiet were the last things we were to have. It was, I think, about a week later that Partridge informed me that Mrs. Baker would like to speak to me for a minute or two, if I would be so kind. The name Mrs. Baker conveyed nothing at all to me. Who is Mrs. Baker, I said, bewildered. Can't she see Miss Joanna? But it appeared that I was the person with whom an interview was desired. It further transpired that Mrs. Baker was the mother of the girl Beatrice. I'd forgotten Beatrice. For a fortnight now, I'd been conscious of a middle-aged woman with wisps of grey hair, usually on her knees, retreating crab-like from bathroom and stairs and passages when I appeared. 
And I knew, I suppose, that she was our new daily woman. Otherwise, the Beatrice complication had faded from my mind. I couldn't very well refuse to see Beatrice's mother, especially as I learned that Joanna was out. But I was, I must confess, a little nervous at the prospect. I sincerely hoped that I was not going to be accused of having trifled with Beatrice's affections. I cursed the mischievous activities of anonymous letter writers to myself. At the same time, as aloud, I commanded Beatrice's mother should be brought to my presence. Mrs. Baker was a big, broad, weather-beaten woman with a rapid flow of speech. I was relieved to notice no signs of anger or accusation. I hope, sir, she said, beginning at once when the door closed behind Partridge, that you'll excuse the liberty I've taken in coming to see you, but I thought, sir, as you was the proper person to come to, and I should be thankful if you could see your way to telling me what I ought to do in the circumstances, because in my opinion, sir, something ought to be done, and I've never been one to let the grass grow under my feet, and what I say is, no use moaning and groaning, but up and doing, as Vicar said in his sermon only the week before last. I felt slightly bewildered, as though I'd missed something essential in the conversation. Uh, certainly, I said, won't you uh, uh, sit down, Mrs. Baker? I'm sure I shall be glad to, to uh, help you in any way I can. I paused expectantly. Thank you, sir, Mrs. Baker sat down on the edge of a chair. It's very good of you, I'm sure, and I'm glad I am that I came to you. I said to Beatrice, I said on her howling and crying on her bed, Mr. Burton will know what to do, I said, being a London gentleman, and something must be done, what with the young men being so hot-headed and not listening to reason the way they are, and not listening to a word a girl says. And anyway, if it was me, I says to Beatrice, I'd give him as good as I got. What about that girl down at the mill? I felt more than ever bewildered. I'm sorry, I said, but I don't quite understand what has happened. It's the letters, sir, wicked letters, indecent too, using such words and all, worse than I've ever seen in the Bible, even. Passing over an interesting sideline here, I said desperately, has your daughter been having more letters? Not her, sir, she's had just the one, the one as was that occasion of her leaving here. There was absolutely no reason I began, but Mrs. Baker firmly and yet respectfully interrupted me. There's no need to tell me, sir, that what was wrote was all wicked lies. I had Miss Partridge's word for that, and indeed I would have known it for myself. You aren't the type of gentleman, sir, that I well know, and, and you an invalid and all. Wicked, untruthful lies it was. But all the same, I says to Beatrice, as she better leave, because you know what talk is, sir. No smoke without a fire, that's what people say, and a girl can't be too careful. Besides, the girl herself felt bashful-like after what had been written, so I says quite right to Beatrice when she said she wasn't coming up here again, though I'm sure we both regretted the inconvenience being such... Unable to find her way out of this sentence, Mrs Baker took a deep breath and began again. And that, I hope, to be the end of any nasty talk. But now George, down at the garage, him with what Beatrice is going with, he's got one of them, saying awful things about our Beatrice and how she's going on with Fred Ledbetter's Tom. And I can assure you, sir, the girl has been no more than civil to him and passing the time of day, so to speak. My head was now reeling under this new complication of Mr Ledbetter's Tom. Now let me get this straight, I said. Beatrice's... A uh, young man has had an anonymous letter making accusations about her and another young man. 
That's right, sir, and not nicely put at all. Horrible words used, and it drove young George mad with rage, it did. And he came round and told Beatrice he, he wasn't going to put up with that sort of thing from her, and he wasn't going to have her go behind his back with other chaps. And she says it's all a lie. And he says no smoke without fire, he says, and rushes off being hot-like in his temper. And Beatrice, she took on ever so, poor girl, and I said I'll put my hat on and come straight up to you, sir. Mrs Baker paused and looked at me expectantly like a dog waiting for a reward after doing a particularly clever trick. But why come to me, I demanded. I understood, sir, that you had one of these nasty letters yourself. And I thought, sir, that being a London gentleman, you'd know what to do about them. If I were you, I said, I should go to the police. This sort of thing ought to be stopped. Mrs Baker looked deeply shocked. Oh, no, sir. I couldn't go to the police. Why not? Oh, I've never been mixed up with the police, sir. None of us ever have. Probably not, but the police are the only people who can deal with this sort of thing. It's their business. Go to Bert Rundle. Bert Rundle was the constable I knew. There's a sergeant or an inspector, surely, at the police station. Me? Go into the police station? Mrs. Baker's voice expressed reproach and incredulity. I began to feel annoyed. That's the only advice I can give you. Mrs. Baker was silent, obviously quite unconvinced. She said wistfully and earnestly, These letters ought to be stopped, sir. They did ought to be stopped. There'll be mischief done sooner or later. Seems to be that there's mischief done now, I said. I meant violence, sir. These young fellows, they get violent in their feelings. And so did the older ones. I asked, are there a good many of these letters going about? Mrs Baker nodded. It's getting worse and worse, sir. Mr and Mrs Beadle at the Blue Boar, very happy they've always been. And now these letters come and it sets him thinking things. Things that aren't so, sir. I leaned forward. Mrs Baker, I said, have you any idea, any idea at all, who's writing these abominable letters? my great surprise, she nodded her head. We've got our idea, sir. Yes, we've all got a very fair idea. Who is it? I'd fancied she might be reluctant to mention a name, but she replied promptly, "'Tis Mrs. Cleet. That's what we all think, sir. "'Tis Mrs. Cleet for sure. I'd heard so many names this morning that I was quite bewildered. I asked, "'Who is Mrs. Cleet?' Mrs. Cleet, I discovered, was the wife of an elderly jobbing gardener. She lived in a cottage on the road leading down to the mill. My further questions only brought unsatisfactory answers. Questioned as to why Mrs. Cleet should write these letters, Mrs. Baker would only say vaguely that twould be like her. In the end, I let her go, reiterating once more my advice to go to the police, advice which I could see Mrs. Baker was not going to act upon. I was left with the impression that I had disappointed her. I thought over what she had said. Vague as the evidence was, I decided that if the village was all agreed that Mrs. Cleet was the culprit, then it was probably true. I decided to go and consult Griffiths about the whole thing. Presumably, he would know this Cleet woman. If he thought advisable, he or I might suggest to the police that she was at the bottom of this growing annoyance. I timed my arrival for about the moment I fancied Griffiths would have finished his surgery. 
When the last patient had left, I went into the surgery. Hello, it's you, Burton. I outlined my conversation with Mrs. Baker and passed on to him the conviction that this Mrs. Cleet was responsible. Rather to my disappointment, Griffiths shook his head. It's not so simple as that, he said. You don't think this Cleet woman is at the bottom of it? She may be, but I should think it most unlikely. Then why do they all think it is her? He smiled. Oh, you don't understand. Mrs. Cleet is the local witch. Good gracious, I exclaimed. It sounds rather strange nowadays. Nevertheless, that's what it amounts to. The feeling lingers, you know, that there are certain people, certain families, for instance, whom it isn't wise to offend. Mrs. Cleet came from a family of wise women, and I'm afraid she's taken pains to cultivate this legend. She's a queer woman, with a bitter and sardonic sense of humour. It's been easy enough for her if a child cut its finger or had a bad fall or sickened with mumps to nod her head and say, Yes, he stole my apples last week, or he pulled my cat's tail. Soon enough, mothers pulled their children away, and other women brought honey or a cake they'd baked to give to Mrs. Cleet so as to keep on the right side of her, so that she shouldn't ill-wish them. Oh, it's superstitious and silly, but it happens. They think she's at the bottom of this. But she isn't. Oh, no, she isn't the type. It's, it's not so simple as that. Have you any idea? I looked at him curiously. He shook his head, but his eyes were absent. No, he said, I don't know at all, but I don't like it. But some harm is going to come of this. When I got back to the house, I found Megan sitting on the veranda steps, her chin resting on her knees. She greeted me with her usual lack of ceremony. Hello, she said. Do you think I can come to lunch? Certainly, I said. If it's shops or anything difficult like that, and they won't go round, just tell me, shouted Megan, as I went round to apprise Partridge of the fact that there would be three to lunch. I fancied Partridge sniffed. She certainly managed to convey without saying a word of any kind that she didn't think much of that, Miss Megan. I went back to the veranda. Is it quite all right? asked Megan anxiously. Quite all right, I said. I'll stew. Oh, well, that's rather like dog's dinner anyway, isn't it? I mean, it's mostly potato and, and flavour. Quite, I said. I took out my cigarette case and offered it to Megan. She flushed. How nice of you. Won't you have one? No, I don't think I will, but it was very nice of you to offer it to me, just as though I was a real person. Aren't you a real person, I said, amused. Megan shook her head. Then, changing the subject, she stretched out a long, dusty leg for my inspection. I've darned my stockings, she announced proudly. I'm not an authority on darning, but it did occur to me that this strange puckered blot of violently contrasting wool was perhaps not quite a success. It's much more uncomfortable than the whole, said Megan. It looks as though it might be, I agreed. Does your sister darn well? I tried to think if I had ever observed any of Joanna's handiwork in this direction. I, well, I don't know, I had to confess. Well, what does she do when she gets a hole in her stocking? I rather think, I said reluctantly, that she throws them away and buys another pair. Very sensible, said Megan, but I can't do that. I get an allowance now, £40 a year. You can't do much on that. I agreed. 